Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome back here to The Nonprofit Coach. This is our first uh, live show following the uh, new year. And I'm really excited about the lineup that we have for the beginning of uh, 2014. I'm coming to you live today from Miami, Florida. I'm here on business. I'll be uh, heading up to the Heckerling Conference in Orlando uh, later today. Uh, But right now, I am thrilled to be here on the Nonprofit Coach. As the announcer said, this is a live call-in show, and you can call in for our Page 2 expert today at 347 324-3080. You can also join us over in the chat room. I see people over in the chat room. And you can always email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. But always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. First up here on uh, page one news, and as always, you can follow along uh, by going to tedhart.com and click on radio links. Uh, First up comes to us uh, from Salesforce, uh, or actually from Cloud for Good, and this is the Salesforce Peer-to-Peer Fundraising eBook. Just posted last week, Cloud for Good is proud to release the first edition of their Salesforce Peer-to-Peer Fundraising eBook. In this ebook, it provides an overview of the current solutions available to the nonprofit community for peer-to-peer fundraising using Salesforce. Uh, we've spoken about Salesforce and the Salesforce Foundation 
many times here on the Nonprofit Coach. 2014 is slated to be a very exciting year for organizations wanting to leverage the power of peer-to-peer fundraising. And of course, our page two expert today is a social media expert. That is the focus of our topic today. In this particular ebook, uh, they will focus on peer-to-peer functionality, Salesforce integration, flow of data, and cost of the solution. Check it out over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, uh, every month we have the opportunity to get caught up with the important work uh, by CFRE. And over in the radio links today, uh, CFRE.org is listed. And right now today we have Ava Aldrich with us. Uh, Ada, Ava, how are you? And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Ted. Um, I'm just great. I think we've got a great year coming ahead for CFRE International and CFRE Credential. So uh, I'm glad to be back on your show. Well, before you get started, I just want to say we provided a link in the radio links today. Hey, that new website looks great. Thank you. We worked really hard on it last year, and we are very pleased. Um, and I'm very happy, too. People seem to be liking it. Uh, we're just so thrilled to have it as another tool to really you know, keep in contact with our certificates and our potential certificates and be able to provide them with the best and most complete and most up-to-date information about CFRE. Well, as you know, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we do um, share with our listeners, we believe that CFRE is an important baseline credential. It's important to uh, show attention to detail and the voluntary stepping up to be measured against your peers and to show that you do have that baseline uh, knowledge. Um, How are the numbers looking in terms of those who have the credential and those that might be applying? The numbers are looking good. We are holding firm with our current certificates. Uh, you know, once you get the CFRE and, and put in all that work and effort, people want to keep it. Um, so we're glad to have that show of confidence. And we were really pleased this last year because in 2013, our end-of-year numbers showed that for initial uh, certificates, those who are applying for the credential for the first time, that we had 11% more applications in 2013 than we did in the prior year. So I think that's a nice number for some healthy growth and something we're looking forward to building on this year. Well, that's a, that's a terrific rate, uh, rate of growth. What do you attribute that to? Uh, A number of things. I think people are really looking for ways to distinguish themselves in the profession, um, and CFRE is one of those ways. Uh, I also think that that there is generally in the profession much more interest in figuring out what is the career path for a a fundraising professional. Uh, I know in my travels and working with various um, national fundraising bodies, there's really an effort there to help fundraisers in the profession by starting to identify what are the things that they should be thinking about doing in terms of their professional growth and advancement. Um, And so I think that having CFRE as part of that career path is becoming something that's more and more in in people's minds. Um, You're seeing it requested more more Mm -hmm. often. I think the, the acknowledgement of the importance of the certification goes beyond fundraisers. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that was one of the interesting things that came out of a panel that I participated in on uh, professionalization and fundraising at the um, Indiana University Lilly School of Philanthropy Symposium um, this last November. And you know, it's it's very important to be able to link up 
academic knowledge of fundraising and nonprofit management with the practitioner side, the things that people learn on the job. And really a practitioner-based credential like CFRE does bring that together because it is testing those established, documented best practices in ethical fundraising. And it's really a, a nice integration tool for people to be able to demonstrate their mixture of professional expertise gained on the job through our application process and showing you've met those criteria, and then through or, or testing of the knowledge base through the exam. Now, are there any changes to the exam? Uh, in June this last year, we did move to what we're calling a global exam, uh, which is simply that right, now we have a credential that is worldwide rather than available – one more time. I'm just so excited I'm not talking right. Um, <laughs> rather than being available in only five countries, now the CFRE credential is available in 80 countries. Uh, but I would let people know who are thinking, well, what does that mean for, for them that they're thinking about taking the exam? Really, this is an evolution, not a revolution. The exam is, is very much what you would expect from the CFRE exam in terms of testing those best knowledge principles. It still draws from our resource list that we have on our website, so you can see what resources you should know and study. Uh, really, the big difference is that there were a handful of country-specific questions in prior forms of the exam. Instead, we are focusing on the body of knowledge that's common to fundraisers, no matter where they practice in the world. And you know, the job analysis on which the CFRE test content outline is based you know, shows, has shown consistently over the years that no matter where people are and where they're practicing fundraising, about 90% of that knowledge applies worldwide. That so, applies worldwide. I mean, it's still, a, it's still very much a people-to-people -people business, uh, and those qualities and skills are important everywhere. Exactly. So I think people will be really pleased with this, and especially, too, with this growth, one of the nice things we're experiencing is more interest from other uh, national fundraising associations around the world uh, in being a part of CFRE, in fact, in, in future uh, chats with you, Ted, I'll, I will be sharing some exciting news about some new partnerships. And all this, I think, goes to say, I mean, for our practitioners here in North America, you know, if they have a CFRE, they have the credential that's been valued here in our geographic area for the past 30 years, but that credential is, is gaining recognition, you know, on a worldwide basis which is, you know, further expanding the value of the credential and I think making it more portable for them as they think about their careers and where they want to be fundraising professionals. Yeah, I think, I think all of this is uh, wonderful news for the philanthropic community and certainly, you know, having trusted professionals who have stood uh, for exam also sends a signal to philanthropists uh, that uh, there are advisors uh, and those that can assist the charities that they support who they can trust. Uh, so I think it's a matter of uh, building that trust as well. We totally agree, and in fact, that's one of the things on our new website. Uh, if you take a look at it on the home page, we do have a place where that says for donors, so donors can click to find out more about CFRE. Uh, we don't have a lot of information there yet, but that's one thing that we want to grow. We want to expand that consciousness amongst donors and also among among employers 
Because as you mentioned, you're seeing CFRE being a preferred credential more and more. But we know there's more work to do to really help people understand who are on the hiring side of things, what does a CFRE mean and why is that going to be a good investment for your organization and its fund development office? Exactly. Well, I, I am thrilled again, Ava, as always, to, to have you here. Uh, we're providing the link over in the radio links today to CFRE.org, and we look forward to having you back next month. Wonderful. I look forward to it too, Ted. Thanks so much. That's great. That's Ava Aldrich uh, from CFRE.org with the CFRE Minute. Uh, wrapping up uh, page one here, uh, going back to the radio links at tedhart.com. Uh, we'll find from the Chronicle Philanthropy uh, a list of don'ts. These are what nonprofits should stop doing in 2014, advice from experts. Now, some of them are, are pretty easy. You pick them out yourself. Uh, stop ignoring people who make medium-sized gifts. Uh, that's just uh, uh, not, not a smart thing to do no matter what. Uh, but also tying into our topic today, and I'm going to be very interested uh, in uh, feedback uh, from our uh, page two expert today, Claire McDowell, will be with us in just a few moments. Uh, and I'll be very interested to get her feedback on one of the principles here, which is stop using social media indiscriminately. Nonprofits that jump onto every new online platform that comes along are spreading themselves too thin. Uh, and uh, figuring out where your donors and volunteers and other supporters are and where they want to hear from you is a much smarter plan. Uh, in this, uh, this outline here, it says, I'd rather see organizations think about how they can go deeply into two or three channels than to try to have a smattering of postings on 10 or more of them. So uh, that will be an interesting topic to, uh, to get from our page two expert uh, today. Uh, also, they advise against hoarding information. A year is too long to wait to tell donors how their gifts are being made. Uh, so that's really going back to good old-fashioned stewardship. Using generic language, too many nonprofits use fuzzy language um, that is meaningful within the organization but does not have uh, much meaning outside of their organization. And that's also um, something that we've talked about many times here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, in 2014, don't fear mobile technology. But I'm also going to uh, add uh, to the recommendation here that it does not necessarily mean that you have to have an app. You probably don't need to have an app but most definitely your website needs to be smartphone ready. Uh, do the testing yourself and make sure that you have a well-designed website that's easy to navigate on a mobile phone's small screen. Um, and you know, stop shying away from taking risks. Uh, get out there. Uh, share your vision. Share your mission and be bold uh, in sharing your information. Uh, that's going to do it today for page one. Uh, that means that it's now time for us to head on over to page two. It is my pleasure today to uh, welcome here to the nonprofit coach Claire McDowell. Claire is an online communications consulting specialist. Um, her specialty is social media communications, which will be our topic today. She has a passion for and an expertise in working with Canadian nonprofits to educate and inspire them to get more involved in social media. But her techniques and recommendations today uh, will be relevant far beyond the Canadian borders. She hails from Scotland and now has, uh, lives in Toronto. She's established Socially Good 
because of the high demand for online and integrated digital communication skills uh, in Canada. And we are providing over in the radio links at tedhart.com a link to Socially Good. Claire is the founder of Be Good, Be Social Toronto, a free social media conference for nonprofits, which takes place annually, and she is also a committed communications and marketing volunteer uh, with AFP uh, Toronto Chapter. Claire is also a proud advocate for Good Works, uh, who focuses on telling deep human stories about philanthropy to inspire action, uh, where she is their uh, chief communication or connections officer in the greater Toronto area. Welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Claire McDowell. Thanks for having me, Ted. It's really great to be here. Claire, it's wonderful to have you here. And of course, 2012, 2013, lots of buzz about social media. 2014, we've been talking about it here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, in our six pillars of success. Uh, number one is a well-designed website with unique content, easy to navigate, uh, both online and mobile. Uh, number two, um, in the United States, so outside of uh, within the United States, is a, a strong guide star strategy. But around the world, number two is a strong LinkedIn strategy. And then we start going through the social media uh, sites of where does Twitter fit, where does Google fit. Um, so we, we're constantly promoting uh, the notion of sort of triaging your time, triaging your message. You don't have to have all the bells and whistles on day one to be able to succeed. Um, but I really want to focus for 2014. That's why we're so thrilled to have you as our very first guest of the new year on this notion of how can you succeed. Um, so let's start off with a little bit more from you. <clears throat> Excuse me, who is Claire McDowell, um, and what brings you to the, the social media sector? Okay. Well, you made me sound like a very, very busy person when you read my bio out. I was, I was actually impressed about all the things I managed to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how I do all that, to be honest. Thank goodness for Hootsuite, I have to say. Um, so my, my social media journey started when I joined um, Oxfam Great Britain in 2009, and I was working as a third-party events and community fundraising uh, manager in Scotland. And I was working on a, a large project to engage and inspire young people around music and around international development. And they all started to connect with me on Facebook. And I couldn't really um, understand why they wanted to talk to me on Facebook. I didn't want to kind of add volunteers to my personal Facebook page. And I really very quickly uh, saw that the young people I was working with, kind of 18 to 24-year-olds, wanted Oxfam to support them through uh, social media and at that time, 2009, through Facebook. So we very quickly um, developed a strategy to create Facebook groups, support groups, pages for all of the different um, Oxjam activities, which was the name of the fundraising event. Um, and that has, that has grown and grown since 2009. So that was my my kind of baptism of fire to realize that social media and fundraising uh, work very well together in certain circumstances. And I just continued to grow a love and a passion and an interest in that area and became really fascinated with all things nonprofit and social media. And I started a personal blog, uh, I think 2009, 2010, called Friendraising. And from there started writing about what I was seeing and watching in social media nonprofit in the UK. Um, I joined Sophie, the 
showcase of fundraising innovation and inspiration um, as their Scottish ambassador and really started to get super, super excited about all of the case studies. And especially in the UK, um, earlier adopters of social media in the non-profit space than Canadian and um, North American as a whole counterparts. So when I moved to Canada, 2011, it seemed like people looked to me as as someone somewhat of an expert because the UK was seen as being more advanced and sophisticated in this type of work than uh, particularly in Canada and even in um, North America as a whole. And uh, my my passion and work has just continued since I, I got to the city. So let me let me uh, drill down into one specific thing that you just mentioned because this is a topic that comes up so often, and that's the notion of personal use of Facebook or other social media sites uh, versus professional use. Um, mm-hmm. And you you have brought up you know volunteers wanting to connect with you, wanting to to particularly um, on Facebook. Um, what do you think are good professional standards? Um, in terms of that sort of use. My, my position has always been I, I only have one Facebook page, which I mm-hmm. primarily use for business, um, but I do post um, some personal uh, interest kinds of things because I think when you're on the Internet, people expect you to be a whole person. They expect you to have yes. a full life. Um, they don't expect you to sort of sanitize everything. Um, and if your notion of a fun time is a drunken binge on the weekend, probably best not to post those photos online. Just have fun yourself. Um, so the, <laughs> the whole notion of, of connecting with um, you know, what you might be considered professional or volunteer, what do you think about that, and, and how can my listeners make sense of all that? Well, back in 2009, um, I definitely had that same problem. And at that time, I set up a completely separate um, professional Facebook account so that I could manage those connections. So for a couple of years, I did have two accounts. I had one that was family and friends and one that was all fundraising, nonprofit, volunteering, Oxfam, um, colleagues from around the world working in different Oxfams. So I kind of had a bit of a split personality for a little while, which um, was quite difficult to manage. But um, over the last few years, Facebook has made more additions and updates to the way that it's organized. So now I have back to having one profile, which ironically was the one that started out as my professional profile. So um, I dumped my friends and family and became friends and family with all of the people who are passionate about nonprofit instead and invited my family over there. And using Facebook's um, listing tools, people can segment what information is seen by different groups of people. So hopefully everyone has some basic awareness of the difference between the little um, globe symbol or world symbol versus uh, two little people and versus one little people. When you see a posting on um, Facebook, that means it's either completely public, it's visible to friends and acquaintances, or it's only visible to people that you have designated as friends. So you can actually manage your contacts within Facebook. So I have lists of people that will only see um, very close acquaintances, friends and family that will see you know, my vacation pictures and birthday parties and all of that kind of stuff. And then I have um, public posts that everyone can see. And I'm, um, for example, talking about being on your show today 
was a post that I made sure that anyone who's connected to me on Facebook can see. Um, so that's friends, family, acquaintances, um, volunteers, professionals that I'm connected to, etc. So I would encourage people to educate themselves about the different levels of posting and managing lists in Facebook. So when you make a new friend, you can choose to add them to a list so that they only see the certain things that you segment and post. And then when you make each post, make a decision on which which visibility level you want to give it. Right. And and so the, the, I think the, the message here, the, the key that you're talking about is to be organized and to utilize the tools of social media yes. um, and not make it overly complicated. Yep. Be organized and be aware. Just um, – do a little bit of reading if you're not um, 100% sure what it is that we're talking about. If you go to the Facebook guides, they'll very easily show you how to organize your friends into different lists so that you choose and you control what is seen on Facebook. And then that way you can have a very vibrant network of people on your Facebook page, but you give them different varying levels of access to your life and to your, your story that you have on Facebook. Now, what about other social media sites? Now, how, how does how does that that strategy fit into uh, utilizing other sites like LinkedIn or Twitter? Well, LinkedIn again, you um, you choose who to let into your network. And LinkedIn, I would remind people, is a professional networking site, so there should never be a place there for. Uh, pictures of people intoxicated or vacation pictures or anything like that. That really is your professional persona. Um, And I do a lot of coaching on LinkedIn, and I help people really understand uh, the value of it, either for their nonprofit organization or for themselves as a professional in the sector. And you can choose um, who to add into your network. So you think of your LinkedIn connections as your little black book. Because once I add someone into my network, I give them access to everyone else in my network. So if I don't know who Ted Hart is, I'm not sure if I want to introduce Ted Hart to all of the, you know, other 500 people that I've carefully curated in my professional network. So I would say don't accept out of the blue invitations in LinkedIn if you don't know who the person is and they have given you no reason why they want to connect with you then be very careful about accepting um, that request right. to connect on LinkedIn. I think that's excellent and, advice, and I'm so glad you brought that up. But let's, let's now, because this question comes up so often, so it's great to have you mm. address these issues. So that, that's, that's an excellent sort of base standard on LinkedIn. What yes. about a standard for Facebook? Um, Facebook, I would say, Facebook I think of, and it depends on each individual person, but for me Facebook has a number of different functions. But to me, Facebook is much more personal than either Twitter or Pinterest or even LinkedIn. Because in LinkedIn, I, you know, professionally, I have a very good reason to be connected to yourself, Ted. Um, But I wouldn't necessarily think that we would have a reason to be connected with each other personally on Facebook because it's more of a personal network. Um, I have a business page on Facebook, so um, my Socially Good page would love to be connected with with you on Facebook, but my personal page is a little bit different. So I have my own personal standard about who I will add on Facebook. Um, Generally, I have to have met you at least once in person or have done some kind of work with you. So I have a lot of virtual colleagues across Canada, being such a large country compared to the UK, 
Um, so I am connected with um, a whole host of wonderful nonprofit people uh, over in Vancouver and Calgary and these places. But I have worked with them in different virtual conferences or I've met them at AFP events when they've come into Toronto. So I have a reason to connect with them. But on Facebook, for me, it's more of a personal network. But I personally have relationships with a lot of people in the nonprofit sector. And then Twitter. Twitter is completely public, completely public. So that is where you really must um, censor yourself and think before you tweet and really think about um, the image and the content that you're portraying into the public domain because it's completely public. So I would never suggest um, drunk tweeting, which um, you know can happen from time to time. Now we have, we have some politicians who apparently like to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. So Twitter is Twitter is the network probably that um, that is people are most nervous of making a mistake on. And some of the best advice I ever got um, was when I was involved with a Canadian organization called Charity Village, which is a nonprofit job site. And I managed their social media for them. And they gave me the three best pieces of advice I've ever heard that applies to all social media. And I said, how, you know, what is your brand? What, you know, how do we portray ourselves? What, what is the language and the tone that we use here at Charity Village? And they said, be helpful, be human, and be kind. Well, I, and I, I think that's, uh, that, that's terrific advice. It's kind of interesting, though, when you think of younger people, like in, in their, their 20s, even younger, um, mm-hmm. who are, are tending to shift away from Facebook now and yeah. are using Twitter in, increasingly as an open dialogue and discussion, almost as if it were open email. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You see a lot of conversation. How does that trend... How does that trend affect uh, a nonprofit strategy? Well, that's, those are wonderful, wonderful opportunities. Um, and we, we talk, um, or we're hoping to talk a little bit today about the, the trends in 2014. And one of the, the trends that I'm really hoping nonprofits will catch on to this year is that social media is a two-way dialogue. It's not a publishing platform, um, and particularly Twitter, um, it's a two-way conversation. So where nonprofits can be very, very successful, and instead of trying to uh, talk at people, is to talk with them, find conversations that already exist around the things that people are passionate about, and join those conversations rather than trying to create their own, rather than showing up and saying, come and join us. There's nothing wrong with joining where the conversation is. So there should be a lot more collaboration, a lot more discussion, and a lot more two-way dialogue, especially on Twitter in 2014. So that's one of my predictions is that finally nonprofits will catch on to social media as a conversation tool rather than a, a publishing platform. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, although I think um, yeah, nonprofits do view it more as sort of a, a, a very large bulletin board where they can push their message out, but they're not necessarily yeah. – paying attention to what's happening around them. Uh, Claire, we're going to uh, take a, a very quick break. Um, we'll be right back. And when uh, we do come back, um, I want to get into more of your predictions uh, for 2014. We're with Claire McDowell here on The Nonprofit Coach, and we'll be right back.
just a couple of notes uh, to remind you, um, apropos to our discussion today, that the nonprofit coach uh, does host a LinkedIn group for fundraising professionals. It's called People to People Fundraising. On that LinkedIn group, we ha now have over 2,630 members uh, in that group, active dialogue and discussion. You can, of course, always follow us over on Twitter. Uh, that is at Ted Hart. Uh, and we have over 2,275 uh, supporters and followers over on Twitter. And we do uh, give updated information, and we do follow a number of uh, topic areas, including hashtag philanthropy on a regular basis over on uh, Twitter. Um, so on today's uh, show, I also want to just uh, give you a quick update since we're just now back from uh, the holiday break, and that is next week we will be back here live uh, on the Nonprofit Coach, January 21st on January 28th. Uh, Kristen Bullock uh, will be with us, and she's going to be speaking about her new book, The Essential Fundraising Handbook for Small Nonprofits. Uh, we'll have a, a short uh, two-week hiatus in the beginning of uh, February, a uh, great time to catch up on uh, past podcasts. We'll be coming uh, back live on February 18th with Craig Bita from Cone Communications. And the folks from Cone Communications are always uh, big uh, um, uh, uh, audiences here on the Nonprofit Coach because they're always bringing uh, updated information that's important to all nonprofits. Uh, today we're here uh, with Claire McDowell. We're going to head back over to the show. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're live here with Claire McDowell. Uh, Claire, um, bring us through some of your other predictions for 2014. Okay, absolutely. Well, um, one of the things that I heard you mention, you were talking about um, a report that's over on your link page, was around um, nonprofits stretching themselves too thin across all of the social media platforms. So one of the things that, um, kind of sadly, I'm predicting for uh, 2014 is probably a little burnout and frustration amongst the average nonprofit. So I'm not talking about the extremely sophisticated. Um, well-staffed, large nonprofits with excellent teams and robust budgets. I'm talking about the average small to medium-sized nonprofit who um, is trying their hardest to get a handle on social media, trying to keep up with it all. Um, and I predict that those uh, those teams and those nonprofits are probably going to feel a little bit burned out and frustrated this year. Uh, last year, Facebook signed its billionth user. Um, there's about 400 million tweets are being sent every day on Twitter. LinkedIn itself has 1.5 million active groups, of which yours is one. Um, and there's 16 billion photos are uploaded to Instagram last year. So on top of all of that, you then have the new platforms that are coming up, like Vine, like Snapchat. And one I just learned about um, in the last couple of weeks, which is called Shots of Me, which is partly financed by Justin Bieber, um, which is all around um, a network completely centered around selfies. Um, and Vine now has 40 million plus users as well. So that is an 
awful lot for people to keep on top of. Um, and I predict that with the challenges of measuring results around social media, there is going to be a lot of frustration and um, overwhelm happening in the sector. What, so, um, where, where do uh, uh, sites like clout.com uh, figure into measurement and strategic planning? Well, there, there are so many different um, tools um, available from free tools to low-cost paid tools to very, very robust and um, integrated systems. So um, it really depends on people having a measurement strategy in place. And I think that that is something, integrated planning is something that I have written down as a, a 2014 prediction that this will be the year that everyone really starts to plan social media into all of their discussions and also allocates time and investment and analytics tools and holistic systems to allow them to actually measure and report on the activity. So before I, before I came on the show today, um, I did a, a quick anecdotal poll of um, some of the great nonprofits that I'd love to use as examples while we're talking here about some of the challenges and things that they're looking forward to this year. And all of them said, this year, 2014, is the year where I'm finally going to be able to find a way to prove that social media has an impact on our fundraising and on our bottom line as an organization. So there are many, many hopeful nonprofit communicators that want this to be the year that they can put that in place and real, show real data around it as opposed to anecdotal evidence. I think that's going to be very important. Claire, we do have a... Uh, a caller, uh, caller, you're live here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, do you have a question for Claire McDowell? I do. Hi, Ted, and hi, Claire. It's Leah Eustace calling. I, uh, I do have a question for you, Claire. The latest research shows that the average tenure of fundraisers is about 16 months. And I'm really interested, especially from the perspective of um, organizations that task their fundraising department with social media, how do you maintain continuity and what best practices should you have in place, um, both from the perspective of the charity but also the fundraiser who's bouncing around? Absolutely. That's um, a really great question, and thank you for calling in, Leah. Um, the best way to maintain continuity is to have um, a policy, a social media policy, and to have um, a strategy that is approved from the top of the organization down so that it really um, is able to be implemented by anyone who would pick up that job. Often, uh, if the fundraising department has social media as part of it, its work, it usually means that there isn't particularly any communication staff within the organization and that fundraising and communications are an integrated team, which is wonderful because it really does help boost the, the fundraising efforts when that all works together as opposed to being siloed. But it often falls to the one person who understands Twitter or knows how to use Facebook. So from a top-down perspective, um, in terms of continuity planning for a fundraiser's job or for a communicator's job, is really having a strategy in place that does give strategic advice on the voice of the organization across different platforms on the tone of the organization, on the type of content. And then to complement that, you really need to have some kind of budget for training and development uh, to make sure that if your trained fundraiser who knows how to do social media does unfortunately move on, 
that you have allocated some budget in place to make sure that either you can hire someone with those skills or that you can train someone in the interim to take over the social media. Great. Thank you very much. Does Any that other questions? Uh, uh, questions, Leah? No, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you for uh, listening here to the Nonprofit Coach. Claire, thank you. That was very insightful. I, I think that topic comes back to what you were talking about earlier, so I'm really appreciative that, that Leah brought that up, and that is if you are now integrating your social media, pers personal and uh, professional, and, and back to, as you were saying, volunteers looking to connect to you because they feel that they have a connection to you, but then you leave that organization, um, what happens to that continuity and how does the organization, um, do they have a claim to your Facebook page? Um, I wouldn't think that any organization ever has a claim to your personal Facebook page. Um, and I would make, encourage all nonprofits to make sure that they have a company or a business page set up on Facebook and, and on LinkedIn uh, so that it's owned as an organizational platform and not tied to one individual person because that's when the problems can arise. Um, and as to personal relationships, I think as, as fundraisers, we tend to build um, personal relationships with our donors and our volunteers, and that is something that makes us effective fundraisers. So that really comes down to organizations having um, an effective policy around HR and retention and movement within their organization. So really the modern nonprofit should also consider when they talk about perhaps when a major gift fundraiser leaves the organization, they have a set of steps in place of how to communicate that uh, to donors that they might have dealt with and to staff internally. So any forward-thinking organization should now be asking the extra question, what do we do on social media when these types of people leave? Um, I know, for example, when I was working with um, an organization, an environmental nonprofit, I was their communications and marketing director there, uh, which was wonderful because I actually got to build our social media and communications policy as part of my work. And um, one of the things that we did when I moved on from that role was write a blog post um, from me thanking all of the people that I'd worked with, the volunteers I'd worked with, the projects I'd worked with, and really made a public announcement of who was taking over and business as usual and how people could get in touch. So in a social media world, it, transparency is highly valued by donors and supporters. So I would encourage people to think about that when they're making these HR plans for these changes that happen in fundraising and communications anyway. I also think it's important, I'm curious if you agree, that uh, if you have established a Facebook page, Twitter account, LinkedIn, any social media uh, that you've established yourself, um, that is starting to be used or may be used uh, in your line of business and you're, you're employed by someone else, for-profit or non-profit, uh, is to have a memo of understanding uh, filed at your organization uh, clearly stating that the organization is aware of the fact that this is your personal account that you're allowing to be used for that purpose uh, but does not belong to the organization. Absolutely, absolutely. So having, having a social media policy that really makes things clear for both the organization and the employees around what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, what belongs to who, um, will become more and more important. And that's something that 
um, as I say, organisations should factor into their their overall kind of HR and operational processes. So when I talk about social media uh, becoming more integrated into an organisation um, as being, you know, a prediction for this year, that's really one of the, the things that I would take into consideration. Social media becomes part of discussions at board level. It becomes part of strategic planning meetings um, with the senior leadership of the organization. So it does not live anymore as an add-on that the intern does. It really now is um, something that should be talked about at the top levels of the organization. It should be have policies around it. It should have guidelines around it. And it should be seen as um, a benefit to the organization and not something to be afraid of or something that's stuck on at the back end of everything else that we do. Right, needs needs to be integrated. We do have an email uh, question, and that is, do you have any examples of organizations that you think do a particularly good job in this area? I do, and I'm very excited to um, to share some great examples with you. Um, we're very proud of lots of Canadian organizations, so I'd love to uh, share some of some of their stories and have have your listeners that are U.S. based check them out. Um, so one of my favorite organizations is um, a very small organization in, uh, here in the city of Toronto called the Redwood Shelter, and it's a home for women and children who are fleeing violence. And I think on Facebook they are a great example of doing really great stewardship um, and feel-good work for their community. Their community is very small. Their Facebook numbers are just in the couple of hundreds but they're extremely engaged and passionate network of fans that they have there. So they're a great example of quality over quantity. Uh, so you can check them out, The Redwood, on Facebook. And why I love them is that even though they're a very small local-based organization, they do innovative things when it comes to digital and social. So their last, um, I think, three or four annual reports have um, been digital annual reports. And their 2013 annual report, um, which can be found at IamTheRedwood.com, is actually designed to look like a Facebook page and is very interactive um, with pictures and images. And in 2012, their interactive annual report showcased the neighborhoods that they're based in with the people and the businesses who contribute to their community. So they're a real example of not chasing big numbers, but real deep, deep, deep engagement with passionate people in their network. So I, I think that's a fantastic example. Other examples? Sure. Um, so on a little bit of a larger scale, um, we have a, the Nature Conservancy of Canada, um, part of the natureconservancy.org uh, group of organizations who ran a really great campaign um, on social media in the late fall last year called Forests Matter. Um, and they actually managed to get their hashtag to trend nationally across Canada in September uh, during a large event that they were hosting in Toronto. But what was really smart about the hashtag trending wasn't the fact that they just created the hashtag and hoped for the best, but they actually had a robust campaign behind it. So for several weeks leading up to the event, they promoted it via email on their website, through all of the social media channels, um, including LinkedIn and Google+. And they also had a Facebook ads campaign to really support the event and the hashtag. They mobilized their volunteers, they mobilized their staff, and they even mobilized influencers and friends by reaching out to them in advance and asking for them to support the hashtag during this really important event. 
And then during the event, they were live tweeting and streamed the event online. So the result of all of that effort was that the hashtag trended nationally um, for over an hour during this very important event for their organization. So that's a really great example of integrated campaigning and not just creating a hashtag and hoping for the best. So I would definitely hold that up as a wonderful case study for people who want to understand how to work hashtags better. And, and hashtags really are uh, so important um, in so many utilizations within uh, social media. Can you, can you speak specifically for someone who doesn't know anything about hashtags? Go all the way back to what are they and why do they in, in particular um, become so important to your Twitter campaign? Absolutely. So a hashtag is um, simply a way of grouping conversations together. So when we, we talked um, a few minutes ago about how nonprofits should be part of two-way conversations and how they should join conversations that are already happening online, a hashtag is a way of basically looking in a huge ocean that's full of all sorts of different schools of fish and identifying the school of fish that you want to go and play with, um, which is a nice, nice metaphor that helps me explain what hashtags are. So a hashtag really takes all of the noise of Twitter and cuts it down to just the people that are talking about the things that you care about. So very often when I'm on Twitter, I'm looking for hashtag nonprofit and hashtag social media, which helps me find all the people who love to talk about the same stuff that I love to talk about. So with creating the Forest Matters hashtag, the Nature Conservancy of Canada found a way to bring people who were interested in forests together and gave them a place to group their conversations so that they could find each other, they could connect with each other, they could facilitate their own conversations. So a hashtag isn't really owned by any organization. It's not owned by Twitter and it's not owned by the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Uh, it's really um, a free form place where people who are passionate about forests, for this example, can share their collective knowledge. Um, so a lot of TV shows have hashtags. I know that um, The Voice in the USA used um, Twitter tremendously to group conversations around different contestants, for example. And they use that live real-time information, actually, I think, this year for voting purposes. So the more people use your hashtag, the more likely you were to stay on the show, which was a very interesting use of a hashtag on Twitter. But you can also use hashtags on Instagram. And actually, one of the, the campaigns that happened here in Canada was with the Lake Ontario Waterkeeper um, in partnership with the Mountain Equipment Co-op uh, company here in Canada. So during the summer, they ran an Instagram campaign uh, with their Canadian waterkeeper groups across Canada. They asked people to take a picture of how they enjoyed their local waterway and use the hashtag in summer we swim. Um, and that hashtag is cross-posted on Instagram and Twitter and wherever anyone chooses to share the picture, actually. And in the end, their competition had a reach of close to uh, half a million people. And they used Mountain Equipment Co-op as a corporate partner to encourage people to take part by offering a uh, $500 gift card as an incentive as well. So again, that was really smart, integrated marketing, using a corporate partner, using an incentive, using cross-platform, and tying it all together with one hashtag, hashtag in summer we swim. So hopefully that gives people an idea of the power of hashtags to, to group um, for competitions, for events, 
for conversations, for uh, specific chats that happen on Twitter at uh, specific times. You can, there can be a hashtag that's used 11 a.m. on a Monday. We talk about this particular topic, and all you have to do to join is use this particular hashtag. And, and is this for every nonprofit? How important is this? Is this becoming a core competency, or is this still a um, sort of a try it out, but it might now be important to you? Hashtags are very, very important if you want to use Twitter and Instagram particularly. Although you can use them on Facebook, the, the use of hashtags has not widely been adopted by anyone. So I don't predict that hashtags will ever really catch on on Facebook because the medium is different. But if you want to be successful um, sharing your content on Twitter and perhaps if you're ex experimenting on Instagram, then it's an absolute essential. Otherwise, if you are sharing great content perhaps about um, you know, violence against women or child trafficking or um, homelessness or hunger, and you're sharing really, really great content, but you're not using um, the main used hashtag for that conversation, then basically you're, you are not giving that information to people who are particularly interested in it unless they have already found your organization. So you're really, really isn't missing that, the Isn't key. that the difference, uh, Claire, isn't that the difference be, between being part of a conversation and just posting information? Yes, absolutely. Posting your information and hoping that people find it is um, not a good strategy, full stop, and it's not a good use of your time. And it also can be a little bit arrogant. If there is a whole conversation going on online where people are passionate about hunger or child trafficking or homelessness, and you choose not to join that conversation, there should be some serious questions asked as to why, why you feel that you don't have to join the conversation that everyone else is having. So educating yourself around the hashtags that are commonly used within your cause and the key influencers that use these hashtags is number one paramount essential to a Twitter strategy. Absolutely. Now, when you're thinking about your social media strategy for, for your organization, this in a lot of ways helps build your brand as to how you communicate, how often you communicate, and whether or not you are part of a community or not. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So having, having a strategy, first of all, full stop is number one. So if you don't yet have a strategy, that should be your first order of business in 2014. So we talked earlier about um, you know, not splitting yourself too thin, having a strategy mm -hmm. for 2014. Um, how do you get started or restarted in, in a smart way? Well, the first thing you can do is uh, look at some analytics tools, whichever ones you've either used before or are comfortable with using. The best place to start really is to look at your website traffic analytics. So whether it's Google Analytics or something different that your organization has, you may have to go ask an IT department. You may go have, have to ask the, the comms department if you're the fundraiser. But really looking at which social uh, sites are driving traffic to your website is a great place to start. And when they're coming from Facebook, for example, which content are they looking at? When they come from Twitter, where are they going? and starting to build a strategy around. If, you have, if you're on Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, but you find that the only site that ever actually creates a click-through to your website is 
uh, Twitter, then start with looking at what can we do more of on Twitter and then which of these platforms are not worth it to us. You know, do we only have 10, 10 people in our circles on Google Plus and we only ever get around to posting once every six months? It's probably better for our brand that we just um, close that page down rather than look like we don't care on that platform, for example. So starting with the existing information that you can get access to will give you an idea of how to build forward. So you don't have to say, everyone's on Instagram, we should be there too. What you have to look at is what is working well for us, how can we do it better, what is not working, and find some reasons, if your Twitter strategy isn't working, find some reasons either to improve it, some lessons to improve it, or find the analytics that show that you don't need to be there. Perhaps your audience is not there. One of the things I always try to share with people is you need to learn um, how to follow before you can lead. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, educating yourself and being being part of other people's conversations, watching what larger organizations, or not even larger, but organizations who've done it longer. Um, for example, Charity Water are great at inspiring others. They run very, very good campaigns. But what's very interesting, if you remember last year, everyone was so excited about these personalized videos that Charity Water made to thank their donors, and they shared them all online. And Everyone was talking about how wonderful that was, but that's actually something that a bunch of Canadian nonprofits had been doing since 2010 or 2011 in a very, very small way with their, their small audience. So it's imitation is a great form of flattery, watching what other people do, um, replicating, admiring, um, listening and learning is, is an absolutely the best place to start. We're uh, unfortunately running out of time, which uh, typically happens um, with such a, a terrific and very timely topic. Um, I want to make sure that before we wrap up uh, today, you are able to share your final thoughts in the last two minutes that we have here, but also making sure that uh, people know how to contact you. Absolutely. So uh, final thoughts, I would say that uh, social media success in 2014 for a nonprofit really means finding a way to measure the impact of your activity on your fundraising and on your bottom line. Um, and that could mean a bunch of things. It could mean dedicating some time to setting up measurement and analytics. It could mean ded uh, raising funds to upgrade your technology so that you can have access to a more sophisticated system um, like Blackboard or one of the other ones that is holistic through your whole organization to around, around tracking. Um, it could mean something as simple as fundraising and communication teams coming together to work on social media strategy. And it definitely should mean social media becoming an integral part of the overall nonprofit strategy um, in 2014. And if people want to contact me or find out more, you can find me on Twitter at socially underscore good. You can find my Facebook page by searching socially good. And the website is www.sociallygood.ca. That's terrific. Claire McDowell, thank you so much for bringing us very practical advice, answering some questions that get asked so often here on The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, we will be back live here on The Nonprofit Coach, 12 noon next week. In between, you can always listen to hundreds of podcasts 
on lots of different topics related to fundraising, uh, social media, and nonprofit management at tedhart.com. Thank you for joining us today on The Nonprofit Coach. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.